0: the rich Neolibs are a bitch Medicare
1: for all Rose bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys
0: Hello and welcome back to reply guys I am so Freaking excited today to have uh, another return guest on. She was one of my favorite guests from last year. Uh, She is uh, a law student, a citizen of the Wampanoag Nation. Uh, My friend and yours, Samantha Maltese, welcome
1: back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, I'm super stoked to be back hanging out. It's, It's been a long time.
0: It's been it's been too long, and I promised that we would have you back at a time that wasn't Thanksgiving.
1: <laughs> That's true. That's say.
0: And unfortunately, it's not under good circumstances. Enough. you are correct. That is correct. Um, we we talked about this the the last time Samantha was on, but um, she is a very cool uh, lady in many respects. She is. Um, obviously, an you know indigenous acti- activist as a member of the Wampanoag Nation. She's also the first member of the Wampanoag Nation to be admitted to Harvard Law School. Go off. Um-
1: <laughs> Thanks.
0: And she just finished her first year there. Um, I wanted to talk to her again this week because uh, I had such a great time talking to you last time. But also because, unfortunately, there was a pretty significant decision made by the Supreme Court last week as it relates to indigenous sovereignty. Um, so, obviously, this this came in a flurry of Supreme Court um terrible decisions so and <laughs> uh human human rights abuses. Um so I think it kind of got buried a little bit mm-hmm. honestly. Um but this court decision um had to do with the the previous ruling in Oklahoma that had come down in 2020 and it overturned that and it said that Oklahoma and Uh, State governments can prosecute uh, non-natives for crimes committed on um, Indian land. And, again, that overturned the decision in 2020. um, And there was a pretty big commercial push by state governments Republicans um who flooded a ton of money into a campaign to kind of ensure this exact result mm-hmm. um and I just I got so angry when I read this decision yeah same um <laughs> as I can imagine you would as well i'm I'm very interested to hear. Um, hear what you think about it from from a legal perspective, but once again, this this comes up uh, every every so often. Uh, a very you know, he's like a fascist on everything else, but Neil Gorsuch is uh, wrote the he wrote the dissenting opinion, mm-hmm. uh, and he is weirdly pretty good on. Um, indigenous law and tribal sovereignty, and he wrote the majority opinion of the decision that was overturned in 2020. Um, but his it was like his dissenting opinion was like a borderline takedown of the other uh, Republican
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um, justices. I'm, um, so I want to know what your your first reactions to to it were.
1: Yeah, I mean, so obviously, we were all having a pretty rough time after Dobbs came down. Like, I think that everyone was just, like, emotionally exhausted. Like, I know several people who were just, like, could not even bring themselves to read a lot of the opinions that have been coming out because it's just been, like, one thing after another and after another and, like, really making people, I think, like, fairly critical, like like genuinely critical about like how our government and like our democracy is set up right now because, so the Supreme Court historically, I think has positioned itself in a way that they kind of avoid. And like, this is also like, there's doctrine involved in this of like, like gen- mm-hmm. like the Supreme Court generally doesn't pick up like political questions or like certain things that like would render democracy on like the precipice of Falling. And I think that this mm-hmm. court in particular has really strayed away from that norm and they're really showing just how powerful like the Supreme Court is in the overarching design of like the American government. And that's really scary because You have like nine unelected people who are determining what is and what is not like a natural right of like the population. Namely, also because they were, you know, appointed by people who lost like the majority of votes in America. So it's just like a very alarming kind of signal to see where the court's going. But I think it's so important that people really take time to look at what they're doing when it comes to tribal sovereignty and when it comes to Native rights and how they treat tribal nations because we're such a small part of the American population. Like we really don't have much of a voice in the legislature, because that's supposed to be like the majority voice where they make sure that they protect like the masses. And then like the counter-majoritarian voice is supposed to be the courts that protect like, you know, like minority voices. And because we're such a minority within a minority, it seems that we just kind of get lost in like the big like mess that is the structure of government. And so it's really telling to see how courts treat tribal issues because it shows what they're doing when nobody's looking and when there's no Mm -hmm. like real ingrained accountability system in like the overarching structure of government and so you know I think that at this point in time like after um like everything that's gone on with Dobbs I I really implore people to take a look at what the Supreme Court is doing when it comes to Native rights because I think it's not only, like, predictive of what they'll do when they realize that they have as much power as they do, if they haven't already, but also predictive Mm -hmm. of what's to come for, like, other marginalized peoples or even just, like, people who have rights that can be taken away. Um, And, like, with Castro Huerta, like, the, the ruling on this is... it's still to be determined. Like, there's obviously, like, the actual opinion and the holding, which is saying, like, Um, that states have concurrent jurisdiction to prosecute crimes of uh, committed by non-Indians against Indians on tribal lands, which has never been done before. Um, Right. And obviously, like, that goes against hundreds of years of history um, and also undermines, like, very foundational parts of federal Indian law. Um, Some of the Mm -hmm. discussion about, like, Worcester v. Georgia, for example, that's, like a very seminal case when it comes to understanding how tribal sovereignty operates in the grand scheme of American democracy and you know that that original case came from an era in time where like states and states continue to be very aggressive and jealous of tribal sovereignty and if you look at how your states individually treat their tribal nations it's really telling even in like quote unquote like blue areas like Massachusetts, for example, has historically been pretty harmful when it comes to their dealings with tribal mm. nations, um, my tribe included. We've still been getting bodied by a settlement agreement that was a very coercive document that basically like limited our capacity to, or the state alleges that it limited our capacity to practice certain um, ventures on tribal lands. And that's just simply not how tribal sovereignty works. And I think that oh, right. state's fail to recognize that because of deeply embedded racism and proximity to tribal nations and uh, like failing to understand like really that there are sovereign governments within sovereign governments um and so to get back to worcester the like the general theme of those cases the original tribal sovereignty and federal indian law cases are that states state laws have no force in indian country and that is the the bedrock of centuries of litigation mm-hmm. and court cases and just like an understanding that we've been operating through and understanding that congress has been legislating through and now to have this case come down giving states kind of like this like weird power now that we don't even know how it's going to play out is just so harmful not only to like the actual kind of theoretical understanding of federal Indian law, but like genuine safety. And one of the things I really wanna like make clear is that the, um, like the people representing Oklahoma here were talking about how like, how can concurrent jurisdiction be harmful? How can that be like like an unsafe thing for native people? Like it's just more boots on the ground. And it's like one, you know, the whole cops thing is questionable in, to begin with. Um, and yeah, what? And then it's like, how could that be harmful? Yeah. Um, so Governor Stitt is really just like an asshole for many reasons, including the fact that they are waging this campaign to try and say like any sovereign, um, operation of like tribal authority when it comes to policing is actually like dangerous for people. And it's like, where's that coming from? Because it's definitely not anti-racist rhetoric, if you ask me. So... And then, you know, one of the problems that we've had to deal with for generations, I mean, if not centuries, is just like so much violence against Native women. And this is something that I'm Mm -hmm. happy to say has gotten a lot more traction in like the last decade than it did previously. But it's still like a very, very difficult um, thing for people to wrap their heads around is that like there is truly and I don't know if I like the word epidemic because it seems almost like it's going to happen regardless, because this is. a a result of many, many years of like colonial genocide, but like there is truly like an ongoing uh, femicide against native women right now in the United States and in Canada and many other places where there are colonized indigenous peoples. And so one of the concerns, one of the biggest concerns I think that people in our communities are having right now is that when states have you know, the capacity to start pursuing crimes here, that leads to less federal attention, that leads to less federal funding, that leads to less funding for tribal um, uh, police and prosecution and tribal courts. And so it's actually like incredibly detrimental to have like states have any hand in the ongoing um, kind of litigation work and um, criminal justice systems that are happening on tribal Uh, Travel lands and reservations and so that's just like one of I think for a lot of us that was like the most pressing concern that we had of like how do we protect ourselves now um in this like continued like terrible terrible system that we live in
0: yeah and I mean I think uh, there are just so many there are so many good um and deeply, painfully true elements in what you said. And I think a lot of it boils down to um, part of what you were getting at, which is the fundamental question of do we in the United States recognize tribal sovereignty or don't we? Mm -hmm. And it comes up again and again and again. And there have been times throughout history where the United States government has chipped away at it. And then there have been times like right now where it's just kind of pulled the rug under, um, out from underneath it. And um, you mentioned Governor Kevin Stitt uh, of Oklahoma. <laughs> Not a, just a gross name to begin with. Yeah. Um, Kevin Stitt, you sound like a villain. <laughs> no,
1: literally. Um, and there's apparently, so I know a couple of friends of mine from Oklahoma, and There, it, there's like a catchphrase of like, Governor Stitt does no shit. And then it's
0: like, yeah, fair, true. Hell yeah. That might be a good episode title for this. (laughs) Um, And so Governor Stitt um, spent $10 million um, to hire private law firms basically to um, convince the Supreme Court via a PR campaign that Uh, in order to paint reservations as, quote unquote, lawless dystopias and persuade them to, you know, weaken tribal sovereignty. I mean, the thing is that even if that were true, which it is not. It is not for them to decide. Yeah. Um, and again, it's that's not true. But I just want to read something from Gorsuch's uh, dissent, dissent, weirdly enough. Um, again, just that guy sucks. But uh, but it, it must be it must be done. Um, he said, truly, a more ahistorical and mistaken statement of Indian law would be hard to fathom tribes are not private organizations within state boundaries their reservations are not glorified private campgrounds tribes are sovereigns mm-hmm. um ugh, ugh, i mean i'm you, you, you the worst person you know makes a great point uh you know um A lawyer, um, Mary Catherine Nagel, who specializes in federal Indian law, said the court has never had the authority to give states any jurisdiction over tribal lands, and that power has always belonged to Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, So the fact that this statement, the fact that this decision came down and that it was even taken up almost in the first place is shows the extreme rightward lurch that the the court has has taken. I mean, we we talked a little bit about this on the last show, I think, but the court is also examining they're taking up a case next uh next term in which uh that would get that basically deals with this like right-wing theory called independent legislature theory that would give republicans and state legislatures uh, republican state legislatures way more um power in federal and state elections um the the idea that the court is an apolitical body has always been false of course but it is especially false now especially given that five of the justices were appointed five of the nine were appointed by presidents who lost, uh, the, the popular vote. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty fucked up. Pretty <laughs>
1: fucked up. I, it, I mean, the thing is, is that when it comes to Gorsuch, I, I refuse to call him an ally. I think that, yeah. so, I mean, his descent is actually like, it's a, it's very, I mean, it's very powerful In his McGirt opinion, you know, at the tail end of the trail of tears, there was a promise. Like that's something, those, those are lines that like you hold on to, but it doesn't show me that he's an ally per se. It shows me that he knows the law. And like, unfortunately, you know, like we are left just like begging these people to under, like, to actually try to say what the law is. And like, that's the role of the court, right? Like original, you know, like constitutional law 101, like you learn in Marbury versus Madison. And the role of the court is to say what the law is. And unfortunately, like these justices, they don't, um, at least the people that are stripping away tribal sovereignty, they simply just don't understand um, like the law, like federal Indian law. And it's because they're coming out of these schools like Harvard and Yale and Stanford and, um, like the, the, these other top ring schools and they're never being exposed to federal Indian law. And I, I, dem- like, I do think it's an institutional problem because Harvard is getting away with not teaching federal Indian law as a required course even though this is something that's been coming up on the Supreme Court case docket for decades now with huge ramifications for like bodies of people within the United States. Um, so Gorsuch is not an ally but he knows Indian law and for that I definitely commend him. And I think that that is very um, obvious when you read his stuff. And it's not like he's sitting here being like, do you know, like these are human beings, like what, like what on earth are you doing? It's like, no, he's actually just like citing case precedent. That is like the foundational part of a lot of like what the court is supposed to be doing. Um, And I think that it's really telling too, like I said, is like how the court treats Tribal sovereignty, how it how it treats Native nations is is a small um, lens into how it treats people more generally, where they don't you know have much accountability in the way. And I think that seeing how willing they are to take such an ahistoric and anti precedent um, like trend here is. Is something that we're gonna see a lot later on if if things continue right. to go this way, and I think it's very scary because it's like as young people, like we're dealing with cases like like the climate change cases and um, things that oh happen to do with like our rights. That you know, if they are willing to put their blinders on when it comes to looking at history and then take them off when it comes to thinking about how the founders would have viewed this. And it's like, well, the founders were slave owners and also all white men. And also with like very questionable- And also
0: they wanted they wanted the constitution to be
1: changed. Yes. Jefferson said he wanted <laughs> the constitution
0: to be updated every 20
1: years. No, literally he was like, what about like, up, like he was literally like, why can't we have every generation have a say in it? And it's just like thinking about, oh, that's why constitutional originalism
0: is inherently a bogus way of thinking it yeah. is inherently a flawed argument because the founders were not constitutional originalists
1: <laughs> and it's like i mean you just sit here right and we're dealing with this like flabby piece of paper from very many many years ago and it's having like real consequences on like our like bodily autonomy and our safety and The way in which we operate with the like the rest of the world and it's it's just absolutely insane and it's really scary honestly to be a young person I think given all of these circumstances um and just knowing that like these justices are also very young so like these are things that are going to continue to pop up and I really I hope that with more visibility when it comes to native issues that instead of relying on the courts to protect our rights that maybe people will actually start voting along the lines of looking at how Mm -hmm. their state, um, like well, local officials as well, but how like their senators and their representatives are voting when it comes to looking at tribal sovereignty and where they stand on these issues. Because like now, obviously like we can't trust the court to protect our interests. And unfortunately we're not a big enough voting block to like vote our way through. Um, to get things fully passed, and there's so many good people doing incredible things down here in D.C. and also from the communities that are able to lobby members of Congress and get the, in like staffers on Senate Committee on Indian Affairs and the House Natural Resources Committees that are like looking to really push legislation that it that encapsulates what tribal leaders have been asking for for generations. But it's not easy when we don't have you know the same population numbers that like people like if like we're trying to push something through, we need support from non-Native people. And that's why visibility yeah. is so important. And you know, mm-hmm. talking about these things on like a bigger scale.
0: Absolutely. And I think what you said about at an institutional level is really important too. It is just fucking shameful that major premier <laughs> law schools are not teaching uh, federal Indian law mm-hmm. as a required course. Um, Especially because, you know, as you know, and as many of us know, um, the entire United States government took a lot of its structure Mm -hmm. from uh, tribal governments. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's one of those things that has to happen at like if, if not in law schools. Where, yeah. where will it happen? Because it has to be kind of a foundational part of people's law practice, and I think it's this twofold issue that you touched on, which is that, like, we know, like, a, a lot of non-native people know, like, where native people are in their state or something like that, mm-hmm. but they don't think of them as truly sovereign. Mm-hmm. And they also think like, oh, because they're like, they're like, they're just a lot of people who are like, they're fine. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're doing it's, there's just such, and and as you said, there's such, there's such a lack of not only representation, but just general knowledge about native issues, Mm -hmm. um, because tribal nations have been whittled down to such a small population through like centuries of colonial genocide um i just i can't think of anything more fundamentally important um than protecting and enshrining federal indian law because just in the maslow's hierarchy of needs of our of our government like everything in this country started with native people Mm -hmm. and i think if we're not taking care of native people or even just basically respecting their their sovereignty and their rights like it is a stain on this country it is it is a harbinger of of things to come exactly as you said Mm -hmm. and i think that this decision came in a in a slate of decisions that did exactly that, that throughout out precedent um, that kind of really selectively um, chose how to interpret the Constitution or just not interpret the Constitution at all. <laughs> um, it's it's wild because when I reread Gorsuch's dissent, it is very much a like facts don't care about your feelings yeah. and it's not. <laughs> It's not emotional. It's just like, this is not an accurate representation of federal Indian law. And this is a deep misunderstanding of tribal sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, totally in support of never calling him (laughs) an ally. He's not an ally. He (laughs) just knows how to read.
1: Uh... Um, No, it's true. And I mean, like, I think... Also, and this is like people should be, even if they don't want to like go into the history of federal Indian laws, they don't really care to like, be like an advocate for other people's, you know, I don't know. Some people are just in their own little self-absorbed world, but like this has impacts for everyone because Mm -hmm. the, like you mentioned, like there was a campaign and this was a campaign by the oil and gas industry. This was a campaign Mm -hmm. by like, like very right wing, like conservative Republican agendas to make sure that when they put their, pressure on administrations and on Congress that tribal sovereignty doesn't stand in the way. And this is not the first time we've run into this fight, you know, like this has been constant, like for the entirety of America's colonial history has been tribes standing in the way of what is going to be like America's like truly worst people trying to do the most harm to the most people in our environment. And everything that we know about how we, you know, kind of like operate within the larger international stage. And the thing is, is that like native people have always been on the front line. And unfortunately it's the same in the legal field is that we are the ones stopping pipelines we are the ones Mm -hmm. stopping walls from getting built we're the ones that are sitting here and trying to steward the land in ways that have been passed down for generations because we know that that's how like nature needs to be treated and unfortunately like when tribal sovereignty gets upended the frontline defenders also get upended in our struggle in our battles to protect all the things that America like needs and Mm -hmm. So it is something that also people who don't otherwise care about native issues, at least like care about yourselves. And like when it comes down to it, like we are stewarding the land for future generations, not just our future generations, but everybody's Um, and that's what these firms and that's what these people are trying to come for. And it's firms like Paul Weiss, it's firms like Gibson Dunn, who's doing the representation for um, the Brackeen case that got granted cert that the court's also going to be hearing next term. And you know, with that, like the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, ICWA is not, it's not just talk, that decision will not just touch on ICWA. That decision is relevant to the foundations of federal Indian law and how we, treat tribal nations as nations rather than a race. We are not a race of people. If you look at Indian country, you will see many, many varieties of what people look like. There's diversity. There's a lot of people who have mixed heritage and operate in very different cultural settings, but are citizens of our native nations. And as such, we operate as sovereign governments. And the courts seem to just like refuse to understand that we don't just operate as like this weird like racialized caricature out of their like weird like racist cartoons from when they were growing up and it's like how like do you not get outside much like i'm like and like finally we have you know some shows and like movies and stuff that have been working on um really incredible projects to get more like indigenous representation in media and i think that that's like so important because it's like, if people aren't learning federal Indian law in college or in law school, like maybe they'll learn something when they just see native people like across media, like hopefully, and to, like understand like, hey, like maybe these are not like ahistoric figures that like were once governments and now they're just like weird descendants and something like that. Because like, that's what this agenda is trying to do is like, they're just trying to like erase us in history. They're trying to erase our government status And they're trying to just say like, hey, these are just like the descendants, like any other racial category. And it's like, no, like, that is not what we are. We're sovereign nations. And we're also modern sovereign nations with our own like governments and dilemmas, just the same as any state or federal government. And you know like we operate as such and to have rulings like this like it really does undermine kind of like not only our investment in our own safety but just like our investment in like governance as a whole and i think that that's what's really scary is like looking at how the court is really setting up these problematic precedents so that they can eventually look back to them and like they'll see this line of like really like harmful cases that they can always just point to it's like oh well we didn't see you as fully sovereign here. So let's just use, pick, cherry pick this case that was bad for tribes. And instead they ignore all of the legislation and the cases that have actually been good. And by good, I mean just like the law. Upholding and they the law. just like, yeah. will turn a blind eye to that. Yeah. And like, they'll just look at these like weird, like quirks in our freaking like the the setup of our court system and they'll be like oh well in this case like these people they didn't think that tribes were really sovereign governments, so let's just like choose that and then it continues and the cycle just like progresses like that so it's just it's all very scary and i really want people to also pay attention to what happens with the brakeen case because that is going to be also very telling one of the things that I've really been able to hold on to and this is really so this is really cute. Um, I'm in this program this summer and one of the parts of it is that they had us all go over to Secretary Holland's office to kind of like meet and greet and like talk with her, ask her questions. And one of the questions I asked was like, you know, in light of everything, including castle Herta, what do we do? Like, how do we advocate now? And she mm-hmm. was just like, listen, like our ancestors have been through hell and back and mm-hmm. they paved so many paths for us to just like run down with, in full force. And like, I'm literally just remember like one of the last things she said before we left, she was just like, be fierce. And I was like, you got it, <laughs> Auntie Deb. Like, I was like, that is, it's true. Like, you know, when it comes down to it, we've been through worse you know, we've had periods Mm -hmm. in history, we went through assimilation when they were taking children out of tribal communities and stripping us of our languages and our cultures and um, cutting our hair and making it like illegal to be native essentially. And not to mention Mm -hmm. like the rampant um, physical and sexual and emotional abuse that went on in those boarding schools. And there's currently like legislation and a huge push at the Department of Interior to really uncover the full extent of what that was. And this isn't like crazy history, like this is like the 50s, so like we have, like there are people like that remember this. And like that's what another thing too, when it comes to the Brakeen case, the historical context of that is for centuries, um, the ways in which the United States government was seeking to clear the land of Native people was by stealing children. And like stealing children, Mm. stealing our identities, stealing everything that made us tribal nations so that they could open that up for continued colonization. And Congress legislated with that in mind. And they passed the Indian Child Welfare Act in order to preserve what we had in our communities and make it so that Native children weren't being taken. And unfortunately, like that is not, like history that that's like the contemporary impacts are still being felt. There's still ways in which the, the government and like specifically like the criminal justice system and like the child protective services systems, they still operate in a way that doesn't recognize like how like native child rearing is separate and distinct from like the traditional American like child rearing practices in a way that definitely like criminalizes and penalizes native parenting strategies. And so these are contemporary issues being felt contemporarily and with what you can see the push from this like weird conservative block of ahistorical historical people. They're trying to say like, that was the past. We don't need the Indian Child Welfare Act anymore. We need to operate as if like native people are simply a racial category. The state should have the say in these things, yada, 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 same old, same old. And it's like, are we just ignoring everything? Like, is that what we're doing right now? And it it looks like that's what they're trying to do. And it's so important for people to understand that history, but also like the contemporary issues facing native communities. Um, and, And that includes like this like overarching history of bless you. <laughs> of assimilation. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, after that, it was Termination Era. And Termination Era was when they were like, you know what, like this whole tribal government thing, we don't like it because we have things that we want to get done, including more land grabbing and also colonization. And they just said, like, yeah, no more I tribes. Mean, and Yeah, the whole thing has been uh,
0: multi-layered, highly orchestrated Mm -hmm. land grab from the beginning and that is what we're seeing uh in this in this court case of course um the fossil fuel industry in oklahoma does not want to see 43 percent of the state designated as indian Mm -hmm. country because then it can't be it's you know its resources can't be exploited um I, there's just so much of this that is really, uh, sickening and I, I would love to hear any, any resources that you, you think our listeners would enjoy. I know I really enjoyed Rebecca mm-hmm. Nagel's podcast, uh, this land, yeah. um,
1: she has like um, a good one is. on, um, so that breaking case is season two. So if people want to oh, check yeah. out, yeah, part two, I think. Um, that's you know helpful always I think for people to get educated and it's like also entertaining because Rebecca's really cool you know so
0: yeah she is very she's very cool she also I mean in terms of like the land grab I learned so much about allotment Mm -hmm. um, which is the process by which colonizers kind of hacked up Indian land Mm -hmm. and um, ended up forcing uh the sale of it very often um it's just it's such it's it's so hard and I imagine it's so hard for you because again this is this is why I'm uh this is why you and I are here talking today but it's like Indian culture is so varied and it's so like beautiful and joyful in a lot of mm-hmm. ways but the only time it gets airtime in the national media is when something horrible like this yeah. happens
1: yeah it's and i mean like i think that's the same to be said for a lot of marginalized communities like it's it's mm-hmm. very apparent if you look at the trajectory of like google searches or like how people will like Or like, I think like they did, like one time they did a report on like Twitter or like Twitter usages of like certain words. And they saw like it's always it's always when something bad happens, because I think that's just how American society chooses to engage with difficult topics. It's like it's right when it's in your face rather than like on a daily basis. And I mean, I, I don't guilt people for that, but I do wish that there were ways in which we could because i think that it also plays into this problem of like people not understanding how we operate as like modern people because it's like we only hear about when our tri- when like tribes are being stripped of their rights rather than like mm-hmm. how they're using them in ways that actually benefit everyone like for example right. like tribes were doing an incredible amount of covid-19 work for mm. for local communities and just like Offering vaccinations and making sure that people had like uh, rapid testing sites that were on tribal lands and even in Oklahoma like the, the Oklahoma tribes make up some insane portion of the state's revenue and I was on a call with or it was not a call it was a webinar and it was one of the um, Attorney General's, I think, uh, or the Attorney General of Cherokee Nation, I believe. And she was saying, you know, it's like the door is open. Like the thing is, is that like states have always treated us horribly, but we know better than to make enemies. And with that, it's like the door is open for states to realize that like tribes are governments and as such, like they make great allies. And especially when it comes to being able to offer services to the public that states just simply can't afford or they don't have the capacity to do. The same is said about like the criminal justice systems. We have so many resources and like ways of living that I think, you know, could benefit so many people if we were just given the platform, had our rights protected, like given more land, like literally giving the land back and like letting us steward it. Like there's so many amazing things that tribes have done that like, I wish would get the same level of attention, but if, if it's the bad stuff, is what it takes, then it's like, of course, like capitalize on that as well. But I hope everyone listening also like checks up on their local tribe and like, just like sees kind of like what they're up to, you know, like what like cool things they're doing for the community. A lot of tribes will do like cultural events, like there's powwows season this summer and powwows tend to be open to the public. And it's just a really good way to understand more of like how we um, operate as like sovereign peoples within the United States. Totally. Well, Samantha,
0: this has been so great and so depressing. <laughs> so great and depressing, uh, yes. Uh, um, we, love to, we love to do it. And um, I I just thank, thank you so much for your time and uh, and your knowledge. Uh, the last question I have for you is, has there been any push at Harvard to include a mandatory course on federal Indian land?
1: I mean, I so I don't. Not recently, at least. Um, Indian law, not land.
0: Sorry, Indian <laughs> this law. Fair.
1: Um, no. So I mean, this is a th- this is the thing that I think. So incoming NALSA president is myself, Native American Law Students Association is myself and a good friend of mine, Anna Bordalo, and she's tomorrow from Guam. And we've really been thinking about, you know, how do we hold this school accountable to its charter, which is to educate the English and Indian youth of this country Um, and how do we make sure that the future Brett Kavanaugh's of the world don't get away with never hearing about native issues, you know, like it's, it falls on native students always and not just at Harvard, but everywhere, but always, and yeah,
0: um, any in any any marginalized mm-hmm. group, it usually falls on them to try to like right the wrongs <laughs> right? of of a particular institution. And it's like yeah. law school's
1: hard, man. Like I don't have time for this. I know. <laughs> like, I'm, just trying to, I'm out here trying to like survive, but it's true. Like we are, you know, considering putting pressure on the administration. Another thing that just came up is, of course, like um, Harvard is in constant violation of the Native American Graves uh, Repatriation Act, which is a federal law that requires uh, any federal or any um, like museum or uh, I guess like warehouse facility that houses uh, that receives federal funding has to go with this ongoing consultation process to return like the ancestors mm. and like the like artifacts that they have from tribal nations to those tribal nations and Harvard's been in violation of that for you know decades if not centuries but so there's been a push but yeah literally, <laughs> I'm like I, like at Harvard like give me my ancestors Slate, back Slay queen <laughs> Yes give us nothing so um, between that like we've seen a big alumni push of like really trying to support students on campus right now holding the the administration accountable so that's definitely Something that we're considering in like the grand the grand scheme of things that we would like Harvard to change and many, many other institutions to change moving forward
0: well i i hope I hope you achieve all of that and more, and i uh, I thank you so much for coming on the show again. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you? If you want them to find you. If you don't, <laughs> so you can just funny. be like you don't have
1: to. Um oh my gosh. Wait, what's my Twitter handle? I forget these things. We can do Twitter because my Instagram is private. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, okay, so my Twitter handle is at S D M A L T 96.
0: Okay. That's me. Samantha, thank you so much. Um Uh, I think I said this to you last time. I hope to talk to you again soon under under better better circumstances. circumstances. But no (laughs) no such luck. Um, Thanks so much. Okay,
1: take care. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash replyguys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel.